It's time we anchor ourselves into the core themes of Christianity. Hi, this is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at West Valley Christian Church. Who is Jesus? What is the Bible? What are sin and grace? How do you become a Christian and then live like it? Over the next few weeks, we're going to dig into these questions and see what God's Word has to say about bringing a new life and new light into our lives today. We hope you enjoy. For their work today. Really appreciate them. I don't know about you, but that last song, I uh, was talking about come to the altar, our Father's arms are open wide. Like, I can't sing that song enough. So I just really appreciate that. You know, uh, most times, for probably about 30 years now, uh, when I go to preach, my wife will ask me if I'm going to be funny. And I say, listen, I don't need to try to be funny. I just am. Okay? Um, but I don't have time to be funny today. All right? We have a lot of stuff to get through. But I do, I do want to just take one moment for something. Um, I just want to see by a show of hands how many of you were awake early yesterday morning to watch the coronation of King Charles. Just raise your hand proudly if your hand, you know, if it's you. All right. Wow. Very, very few of you. Okay. So Pastor Rob didn't raise his arm, but I know he was up. Okay. Um, and so uh, I asked him at the men's breakfast. There were like four of us that were awake for it. And actually there was one guy <clears throat> who uh, woke up early on purpose to watch it. The rest of us, it was an accident. Okay. So Rob and I, Rob and I were awake and we watched it. We were not together, by the way. Um, <laughs> thought I should clarify this. Um, but we watched it, but it was an accident, all right? Well, anyway, but there was one thing I noticed during this thing that I really liked. So uh, one of the guys that was, the big part of it was a guy who was, he's the Archbishop of Canterbury, okay? And I'm not really one big on titles, you know, but if Jesus is the King of Kings, in, in line with this, if Jesus is the King of Kings and pastor is the lead pastor, does that make me the spare pastor? Rob doesn't even know what that's about, okay? Uh, but anyway, one of the things I loved about this, the Archbishop of Canterbury, if you notice, he was all throughout the building during the service. Actually, most of you didn't watch it. You don't know. He was all over the place, and there was no podium for him. And so what he had is he had a little valet that walked around with him. It's so wherever he went, somebody else was holding his, his little notebook, and I was like, you know what? That might be fun in church, okay? <laughs> so maybe uh, Pastor Rob could be my valet, and sit, sit down. <laughs> but even more important than that, maybe I could have Doug Hiller be the one that comes up and he just dabs my forehead. Okay? Maybe not. Anyway, so enough nonsense. So we are on week four of our Discover Life series. And, uh, you know, so we've looked at Jesus. We've looked at the Bible. Last week we looked at sin and grace. And I spent a few weeks preparing for this message, and I was like, man, this message of discipleship and conversion is so important. And in my head, I'm like, this is like the most important one. And then I was like, well, no, it can't be the most important one. Because like Jesus has to be the most important one, doesn't it? Okay, like if we don't believe in Jesus, everything else we're going to talk about is a waste of time. Okay, and then honestly, if you believe in Jesus, but then you neglect God's word, you know, like if you don't, if you don't have the Bible as your authority in your life, then nothing else that we say is going to really matter. And then last week, as Pastor Rob talked about sin, and he talked about grace, like, you know, we need to. Now, many of us already know that we're sinners. But you might find this hard to believe, but some people need to be convinced that they're sinners. Like, we need to be reminded that we, are, we have some serious problems. We call it a radical problem because of sin. And so we talked about that. That's pretty important. But then also, as you're talking about a radical, a radical problem of sin, 
we need to be reminded of how important grace is. And we'll continue to talk about grace even some more today. But all of them are important. They all build on each other. Jesus, the Bible, sin, and grace. And so then we get to today, discipleship and conversion. And uh, I just want to apologize now. We have a lot of scripture to look at today. We're going to do the best that we can. Um, but just hang in there with me. So when I was younger, and I was going to Bible college, and even after I was done with Bible college, um, you know, the internet wasn't really a thing yet, okay? And so I was one of those people that I just bought book after book after book. Like, I was always buying books. So you never know when you might need to know something, okay? And so I just kept buying books. I would go to the used, books, the used Christian bookstore down by our college, and I'd buy books in the library at school. Uh, like, a lot of time when pastors would um, either retire or pass away, their estates would donate their books to the library at the school. And so often in the library, you would have these books just piled up in the discarded book pile. They were 25 cents. What a great deal a lot of those books were. So a book that I bought a long time ago, and I don't know where it was. It wasn't a discarded book because it doesn't say discarded in it. Um, it was a book called The Cost of Discipleship by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in 1906 in Germany. And so he's known as a pastor and a theologian. He's mainly known because he wrote this book. Okay? But also, uh, during World War II, he was very adamantly opposed to Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime, of which you could imagine that wasn't very popular in Germany, okay? ha taking that stand. And, and so he was very much against them. As a matter of fact, and I don't know if he was involved or not, but eventually they put him to death for being involved in a plot against Hitler's life. And so when I was uh, getting ready to start working on this sermon, I just started pulling off my shelf all the different books that I had that deal with discipleship and being a disciple. And this was one of them. And um, I'd read a few chapters before, but I just started with the introduction this time. Okay, good place to start. And as I read the introduction, I was like, wow, these are such powerful, powerful words. Let me read to you just the first paragraph. He says, revival of church life always brings in its train a richer understanding of the scriptures. Behind all the slogans and catchwords of ecclesiastical controversy, necessary though they are, there, arise a more, there arises a more determined quest for him who is the sole object of it all, for, Christ, for Jesus Christ himself. What did Jesus mean to say to us? What is his will for us today? And how can we help us, or how can he help us to be good Christians in the modern world? Those are still relevant questions today. It says, in the last resort, what we want to know is not what would this or that man or this or that church have of us, but what Jesus Christ himself wants of us. When we go to church and listen to the sermon, what we want to hear is his word, and that not merely for selfish reasons, but for the sake of the many for whom the church and her message are foreign. And as I read that paragraph, it was so like inspirational to me, and it made me wonder why it sat on my bookshelf for 30 years before I looked at it. Um, but it's saying, listen, if we want a revival, it's always going to come from a better understanding of God's word. We don't need better slogans or catchphrases. The question for all of us is this. What is Jesus trying to say to us? What is Jesus' will for our lives? You know, it doesn't matter what Pastor Rob wants for all of us. In the end, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I want for all of you. What matters is what does Jesus want for you all? 
Like, what is his will for us? It doesn't matter what the church around the corner says or the church up the street says. What matters is what Jesus wants for us. What does Christ want of us? Because we want to know what God wants for our lives. And so as we look at these two topics of discipleship and conversion, um, I can't think of anything more important to say right at the very beginning because it's all about what he wants for us, not what I want for myself, not what I want for you, not what you want for me. All that really matters is what God thinks about those topics. And all that really matters is what it says in Scripture. So we're going to start by looking at this idea of discipleship. So in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, at first glance, that verse doesn't really say too much, but the importance of that verse is to understand that up until this point, everyone that followed Jesus was simply just called the disciple of Jesus. There wasn't any special name. I mean, there might have been other names going around, but generally speaking, they were just called disciples. And that's so important because as you read through the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly talks about what it means to be a disciple. And the reason that's important for us is, you know what, when Jesus talks about what it means to be a disciple, he's talking about you and I. A disciple isn't some like super Christian. You know, it isn't like a level three Christian. A disciple is something that all of us are called to be, what Jesus is expecting out of each one of us. And so today we're going to look at five different verses in this area of discipleship and what they teach us about what it means to be a disciple. And so the first one tells us that a disciple obeys Christ's teachings. In John chapter 8, and again, if you have your Bible, you can go to turn to John chapter 8. The verses will be up on the screen. Uh, if you didn't get a bulletin, all these scriptures are in there. So if we go too fast, they're all in there. You could look at them again. But in John chapter 8, starting at verse 31, it says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, as a disciple of Jesus, there are some things that are more difficult for each of us than others. Like there are some things, like whatever might be easy for you might be a challenge for me. What is easy for me might be a challenge for you. Like for me in my life, I love to read in general. Like I just love to read. Uh, but one of the things I love to read is I love to read my Bible. Like it's just always, it's always been something that's easy for me to do. I enjoy it. Um, I love reading things that I go, wow. I've read my Bible lots of times, and yet I didn't know that was in there, okay? Like, I love coming across something that's new, even though it can't possibly really be new, but I just hadn't noticed it. As a matter of fact, Pastor Rob and I had actually an embarrassing conversation earlier this week because we were talking about a certain name that we both were like, that name's in the Bible? Really? And uh, neither one of us were 100% were certain. Turns out it, it is in there. And, uh, and it was kind of one of those moments like, man, I've read my Bible a lot of times. Why do I not remember that that person is in there? Um, and yet I love reading the Bible. And yet, you know what? If I memorize the Bible from front to back, if I could quote you any verse, like if you could just ask me a verse and I could quote it to you, but if I don't obey it, it's worthless to me, right? Because Jesus is saying, listen, it says, to the Jews who had believed him, these guys believed in him. They believed what he was saying but then he said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Just saying, hey, man, I believe in you wasn't enough. What they needed to do is they needed to obey him. And that is so important because just coming to church 
doesn't make you a disciple. Going to Bible studies doesn't make you a disciple. Getting all kinds of head knowledge, giving in the offering, all those things don't make you a disciple. And as we think about this, guess what? We don't get to pick and choose what we obey. As we go through God's word, we don't get to just pick, oh, I like that chapter, but I don't like that one. Like we're called to obey them all. And especially this is so relevant, I think, for for us today is, you know what? We don't get to tell Jesus that his teaching no longer fits today's culture. Like we we don't mold Christianity around today's culture. We mold our lives around what Jesus said. We do not get to tell him that his teaching no longer fits today's culture. There's a whole nother sermon with that statement just alone. And so these guys that heard Jesus speaking, he's saying, listen, if you hold to my teaching, then you're my disciples. You know, one of the verses that is in the, in the, in the word lesson or in the Bible lesson, James chapter 1, verse 22. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. What a powerful, what a great verse. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. And so this morning, my encouragement to you and to me is, you know what? A disciple is someone who obeys the teachings of Jesus. In Luke chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, he replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. We're not blessed just because we hear it. We're blessed because we hear it and we obey it. Uh, the second thing I want us to know is not only is a disciple someone who obeys the teachings of Christ, but a disciple is someone who's committed to loving relationships with other disciples. You know, in John chapter 13, a passage that we went through as we we're leading up to Easter, it's talking Jesus in this whole section is leading up to the cross and he's preparing his disciples for what's about to happen. And so he tells them this in John 13, starting in verse 34. It says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so again, we preached through these chapters as we went to Easter. But you know what? God's will is still that we as his disciples, we be committed to loving one another. Now listen, some of us are easy to love. Some of us are more of a challenge to love. He, he doesn't say, just love those that are lovable, okay? He wants us to love one another. He wants us to love each other, all of us. He, he wants you to love those of us that are difficult to love, okay? I'm not pointing any fingers out there. Let me just point at me, okay? Sometimes, listen, my wife will tell you, sometimes I am hard to love, okay? She's not here to amen that, so I can say that. <laughs> but Christ has called us to love one another, and guess what? The world is supposed to see the way we treat each other, and they're supposed to be able to see that there is something different about us. They're supposed to see that there's something different about us. So someone should be able to come into church and see that we treat each other differently than the world treats one another. And so a disciple is committed to obeying Christ's teachings. A disciple is committed to loving relationships with one another. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us. He's saying, dear friends, because that's the way God loves, 
we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. So a disciple obeys Christ's teachings, committed to loving relationships with one another. And in John chapter 15, verse 8, it tells us that a disciple is committed to bearing much fruit. Matter of fact, it just says, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciple. And again, this passage is in a section where Jesus is talking about the vine and the branches. He's the vine, we're the branches. And so what's supposed to happen is, when we stay connected to the vine, we're going to be healthy. Okay, you ever notice that? Like, other than weeds, at home, if you cut something off, like a tree or whatever, it, it dies. I cut my weeds, they just come back. Okay, I don't know what the deal is there. But, but with vines and the branches, like, we're supposed to stay connected to the vine... And if we are connected to the vine in a healthy way, there's going to be fruit produced in our lives. And so over the years, people have thought that means different things. Like some, for some people, the idea of bearing fruit means the idea of sharing our faith and bringing others to Christ. I think that's certainly an element of, of, of bearing fruit. I also think there's some people talk about like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Now, I, I love that verse. Okay, now, Paul hadn't written that when Jesus said this, so Jesus might not have exactly had those words in, in mind, but that's certainly part of it as well. But when we stay connected to God, there should be fruit in our lives. People should see something happening because of our relationship with him. Uh, one of my favorite commentary guys is a guy named William Barclay. He's just kind of a down-to-earth, common-sense kind of thing, and he writes about this passage. He says, finally... We must note that there are two things laid down, laid down about good disciples. First, they enrich their own lives. Their contact makes them fruitful branches. So he's talking about us being connected to God. It enriches our own lives. But secondly, it says they bring glory to God. The side of their lives turn, turn the thoughts of others to God, to the God who made them like that. God is glorified when we bear much fruit and show ourselves to be disciples of Jesus. The greatest glory of the Christian life is that by our life and conduct, we could bring glory to God. We are to bear fruit. We are to bring glory to God by the way that we live our lives. We're not to bring scorn to God's name or shame to God's name or disappointment to it. We're here to bring glory to God's name. All right. What kind of fruit are you producing in your life? What kind of fruit are you producing uh, the fourth verse that I want us to look at is in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And it simply tells us that a disciple is committed, well, it doesn't simply, it, it's telling us that a disciple is committed to putting Jesus first in every area of our lives. Not sure why it simply comes out, because that is nothing simple about that. But in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, it says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Now, verse 25, Luke 23 is, 9, 23 is great. 25 has always been one that stands out to me as well. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when it comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So Jesus tells us in verse 23 that there's three things that we need to do to follow him. We have to deny ourselves. Okay? No show of hands here. How many of you are good at denying yourself? 
Most of us are not very good at denying ourselves. As a matter of fact, I find the older I get, the harder it is to deny myself. And the reason why is the harder I get, there are fewer people telling me what to do. Okay, like the younger you are, the more people that that are authority over you, the more people that are telling you what to do. They're doing a good job of denying you, okay? But as you get older, there are fewer and fewer people telling you what to do. And so it becomes harder, I think, to deny yourself. It has to become much more of a discipline to say, man, I need to say no to that, okay? Because Christ is calling us to deny ourselves, to put others first. And then he says you're to carry your cross, of which that's just another way of saying deny yourself, Because in the first century, if you saw someone walking down the street carrying a cross, it meant they were on their way to die. And that's what we're to do to ourselves. We're to put to death our selfish, our selfish things. So we're to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily. And then thirdly, he says, follow me. Okay, because if we're denying ourselves, we're taking up our cross, then it's easy to let Jesus lead. Okay, when it's all about me and it's all about my stuff, I'm not interested in anybody else leading me. I'm the one in control. But Jesus says to follow him, we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And again, I love verse 25 because I think it's still so powerful and relevant in our world today. I think I see so many people that instead of doing what 23 says to do, they're here just to try to gain the whole world. And in the end, it's pointless, it's worthless. And so we're putting Jesus first in every area of our lives. And one of the key things that's important, and this is true for all these verses that we're looking about, is you know what? This isn't optional. Like, we don't get to pick and choose. Like, okay, Jesus had five verses about being a disciple. Let me just pick one, three, and five. Okay? Or, you know, I really like two and four. Those will be easy for me. No. He's calling us to be like this for all these things. And it isn't just for the few. It's for all of us. Another book from when I was younger um, is called The Making of a Disciple. I don't remember when I got this book, but it's just a great book about discipleship. There's a couple things that that he wrote in here that I want to read. Under under a section entitled Self-Death, he writes, Christ's call to discipleship is a call to self-death, an absolute surrender to God. And then later he says, but Jesus is honest and direct. To share in his glory, a person must first share in his death. Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. And the Lord of the universe commands every person to follow him. His call to Peter and Andrew and to James and John was a command. Follow me. Has always been a command, never an invitation. Jesus never pleaded for someone to follow him. He was embarrassingly straightforward. He confronted the woman at the well with her adultery, Nicodemus with his intellectual pride, and the Pharisees with their self-righteousness. No one can interpret, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as begging. Jesus commanded each person to renounce self-seeking pursuits, abandon his sin, and obey him completely. When the rich young ruler refused to sell all and to follow him, Jesus did not run after him trying to negotiate a compromise. He never watered down his standards. Jesus simply said, whoever serves me must follow me. Jesus expected immediate obedience. He accepted no excuses. And those are powerful and true words because quite often when we talk about God's grace, we like to talk about God's grace 
but sometimes we're not too comfortable with the truth. And the Bible tells us that Jesus came full of grace and truth. He's not interested in begging us. He is calling us to follow him. It's not an invitation. It's a command to follow him. The last verse is in Luke chapter 14. And in this passage, it talks about how disciples committed to Jesus being the highest priority in their life. And so it's very similar to the last verse. And there's a couple of times in this section where Jesus says, listen, if you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say, maybe you can be, or maybe you can't. He's saying, you cannot be my disciple if you don't do these things. So listen for those. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own lives, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then skipping to the last verse, verse 33, he says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Those are some tough words, okay? And let's just talk about it for just a moment. Because you know what? For all of you teenagers in here, this is not an excuse to be angry at your parents, okay? Because what Jesus is really saying is this. He's not talking about animosity, okay? He's saying, you know what? I'm more important than everybody else in your life. I'm more important than your mom and your dad. I'm more important than your husband or your wife. I'm more important, and this is a challenge for some people, I'm more important than your children, okay? Jesus is saying, I have to be more important than everybody else, And if that's not okay, you cannot be my disciple. And then he again talks about carrying his cross and following me, which we looked at with the last verse. And in the end, when he says, if you do not give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. Guess what? I don't think Jesus is asking us to leave here today and give away everything that we have. But what I think he's asking us to do is to walk away from here and say, Lord, everything I have is yours. You can use it for your glory because it's yours anyway. Like everything that I have is really just, it's, it's on loan, okay? It, it temporarily, God has given it to me for a little while, and you may use it for your glory. That's what he's calling all of us to do. So if, you've, if all of you that have been through a study, you'll know there's a diagram that's going to come up. And this has been part of our study for the last 40 years, and it's so important because it's really about who's on the throne in our lives, Okay, that circle represents our lives. The throne represents who's in charge. And so if you look at that first circle, you see that the self is on the throne. The cross, which represents Jesus, is outside of our lives. And everything in the life is all jumbled up, all messed up. And so that represents a life without Jesus, okay? That doesn't mean people without Jesus don't, aren't happy people or that everything is always bad, okay? It's just a diagram, all right? But what I want you to understand is, you know what? That second diagram, it's a little bit different. Okay, Jesus is inside the person's life, but the self is still sitting on the throne. Things are still jumbled up. There's a little more order, but self is still sitting on the throne. And guess what? That is not where Jesus wants us either. Okay, where Jesus wants us is that diagram number three, where the cross is on the throne of our lives. Jesus is in charge. The self is still there. We're never going to get rid of the self. Self is always going to be in our lives, but it's smaller, and there's order to the things in our lives. Now, let me be clear about this. This really is just a diagram, okay? This diagram is not promising you that if you make Jesus the Lord of your life, you're never going to have any problems. 
because that's a lie, okay? But what there will be, if Jesus is the Lord of our lives and he is on the throne of our lives, I think there's going to be a lot fewer self-inflicted wounds, okay? Like the nonsense in our life, when our life looks like picture number one, most of those things are self-inflicted. And so when Jesus is on the throne, there is more order. That's what he's looking for. He's not happy with one or two. He wants number three out of each one of us. He wants to sit on the throne and bring order to the chaos of our lives. All right, so we've made it through discipleship. Let's see uh, how far we get into conversion here, okay? Because this is so, so important. Um, As we look at this idea of conversion, I want to start with Ephesians chapter 2. And start with verses 8 through 10. Because it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You and I, if you are a Christian today, if you're a disciple of Jesus, I'm going to remind you that you have been saved by God's grace. You have not been saved because of anything you did because of how good you were, because of how much money you gave, or how many weeks in a row you sat in church. Like, we are saved by God's grace. And that's so important, because as we look at this idea of conversion, I want us to realize it's all about Jesus. And to remember that there are things I believe that God expects out of us, but it's still Jesus that saves us. Okay, it's not me that saves myself. I cannot save myself. Jesus saves me. All right, so let's look at these really quickly here. John chapter 3, verse 16. Probably looked at that already in the Jesus lesson. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So what do you and I need to do if we want to be saved? We need to believe in Jesus. Okay, right? Makes sense. That's a foundation there. If we don't believe in Jesus, again, everything else is just a waste of time. The foundation is we put our faith in Jesus. We believe in him. Second verse I want us to look at, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 8. It says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. This is Paul writing. It says, yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, But because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And so we believe in Jesus And then we repent and we turn to Jesus. And I want you to think of it like this. If I'm living my life of sin, if I'm the first circle in that diagram, as I live my life in sin, I am walking away from God. I'm walking away from Jesus. I'm walking away from him. But when I repent, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And so I turn around. And I'm turning around and I'm walking towards Jesus. And so that first thing is, what do we need to do? We need to believe in Jesus. And secondly, we need to repent and turn to Jesus. Third passage is in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9. It says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. If we want to be saved, we need to confess that Jesus is Lord. 
Those are words that come out of our mouths, but they represent the change of our heart. That Jesus truly is Lord of our lives. He is our master. He is the one in charge. And so, like for us at church here and down through the last couple thousand years, typically before someone gets baptized, we'll ask them, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Hopefully they respond yes. Okay? I've never heard anybody say no. But that would be kind of weird. Okay, we're going to exit the water now. Um, but yeah, we're asking them. That's the good confession. They're confessing Jesus as Lord. And when we do that, it's like we're confessing whose team we're on. Okay? It's like, you know, a lot of you, um, like you'll show up, even sometimes at church on special weekends, you'll show up with your team's uniform on. Pastor Rob has preached with the Dodgers stuff on. You're, it's a declaration of whose side you're on. And that's really what we're doing is we're confessing Jesus as Lord. And that also goes hand in hand with this last verse. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter, if you remember Peter before Jesus' crucifixion, he had, the people ask him about Jesus, like, I don't know him. Okay, I don't know him. I don't know him. Three times he denies Jesus. Just a, a little over a month later, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes on, on Peter and the other apostles, and he's preaching this incredible sermon. He's preaching the sermon to the very people that are against the message. And he talks to them and he preaches to them. He says, man, this Jesus whom you crucified has been made both Lord and Messiah. Like Jesus is it. And so in verse 37, they've heard this incredible sermon and they respond by this. In verse 37, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They heard the message and they believed it. And they're like, man, how do we need to respond to what you just told us? And then Peter replies with this, says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So they're convicted they believe the message, and they say, what do we need to do? And he tells them to repent and to be baptized. And in verse 38, what does it say happens when we do that? It says that we are given the, the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we receive the forgiveness of our sins. Okay? We believe, we repent, we confess, we're baptized into Jesus. Okay? Because it's still about Jesus. We're baptized into him. He's still the one doing the work. He's still the one doing the changing. And I love where it says in verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. You and I, as we sit here today, 2,000 years later, we are still those people that are far off, looking to claim that same promise. We're saved by God's grace. Our response to God's grace is to believe in Jesus, to repent, to turn to Jesus, to confess Jesus as Lord, and to be baptized into him. This is God's plan. My question for you today is, have you made that decision yet? And if you haven't, why haven't you made it? I'd encourage you to do it and to do it now. As I close, I want to think about one of my favorite passages in the Gospels is in Luke chapter 18. Uh, Jesus is, is on his way through Jericho, and he's going through Jericho, and there's a blind beggar on the side of the road, and he hears that Jesus is there. And as he hears that Jesus is there, he, he knows, man, Jesus is the only one that can help me. And so as he's sitting there, he says, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people around him are like, shh, 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 
hold it down. And yet instead of being quiet, he screams it out all the louder, you know. And I don't know how many times this happened or how much this went on, but I can only imagine this blind guy sitting on the road screaming, son of David, have mercy on me. And it gets Jesus' attention. And Jesus interacts with this guy, and he's healed. And, and the thing that's so, that stands out to me so much about this story is, you know what? This blind guy didn't know this, but this was the last time Jesus was going through Jericho. Jesus was never coming by again. Okay, like if he had sat there quietly, if he, when they told him to be quiet, if he had sat there quietly and just shut his mouth, he would have died a blind beggar. But he screamed out for Jesus, and Jesus did something to help him. And the reality is, and we just don't know. We don't know what time we have. We don't know when our time is up. And so I would encourage you guys, if you haven't made that decision to follow Jesus, don't put it off. Don't put it off. Because we never know when it's the last time Jesus is coming by. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for just what you have done for us. Lord, I pray for for those of us that have already made a decision to follow you. I pray that today would be a reminder of the commitment that we made. It would be a reminder of who you have called us to be and that you would draw us back to that. Lord, for those that are here today that haven't made a decision to follow you, I pray that you would be just tugging on them and that they would not wait any longer but to make that decision to call you Lord. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at wvcch.org or you can join us live in one of our Sunday services. Have a great day. Oh